Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. It'll be great. So last week we talked about, um, we talked about the light subject of spiritual warfare, the devil and lies. Very, very like uplifting, exciting time. You probably went home and went, I feel better. Uh, no, we, we, we talked about the nature of lies and we went back to the story of the garden and what we can learn from the interaction between Eve and the serpent. And in that, we saw that there was uh, kind of different approaches, different stages, different ways in which we get lured into different temptations and ultimately to believing uh, lies. And the first part of that was a simple question. Did God really say... And it was that simple question that planted a seed of doubt in Eve's mind, eventually leading to her, her to believing um, lies. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. I want to talk about that part, of, um, that part of the faith journey, the part where maybe we're experiencing some sort of doubts or questions. Now, I'm not saying all questions and doubts are bad. In fact, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan to some degree of them. Um, that is actually a big part of my story. If you don't know me, um, my name is Cody. Hi, good. Thanks for being here. Great. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was raised in the church. My dad's a pastor, mediocre. And, um, <laughs> and as, I, uh, as I was raised in the church, of course, I was raised um, as a Christian. And um, that worked. That worked for a really long time. In fact, I went to Bible school and I was studying to be a pastor. There's a, a multiple generations of pastors in my family. I graduated. I started to go into ministry. And there was this one moment, and I know exactly when it happened. There was a, a, a kind of a cultural movement happening. There was these people called the New Atheists. This was about 10 uh, plus years ago. People like Richard Dawkins and, and uh, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. And, and all these guys were writing books about not only was... Um, not only was religion false, but there was no God. And I thought, you know what? I, I know a lot about Christianity, but I don't know a whole lot about their arguments. And so I started to jump into some of the literature, and I picked up the book, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I started reading it, and I cannot tell you what was in that book. Here's all I remember, is I started to, I started to ask some questions that I had never asked before. Like, what if God doesn't exist? What if the faith that I had grown up in, what if I just believe it because this is what my parents taught me? What if I was wrong this whole time? I mean, these are some pretty smart guys. What if they have some insight that I don't have? And so it began this long and difficult journey of me asking a ton of questions about my faith. And there were so many questions and so many doubts. And in fact, part of my story is it sent me back to school to get a master's degree because I wanted to answer these questions. I wanted to be around people who might have uh, already asked these questions. And so I just, I began walking through this process, a very painful process. And I'll be honest, I still, to some degree, not nearly like it was before, but I still have questions. I still have doubts. And so I thought, you know, maybe... Um, Oh, and by the way, during this whole time, a couple other things happened. One was, um, I came, I, I started to see, like, I wasn't the only one with questions and doubts. Like, I started to see former um, church leaders that I had grown up with that had just walked away from the faith. I saw close friends. And then there was this one moment, and this is what kind of threw me over the edge, is I was meeting up with my former college roommate. And remember, both of us were in a school in which we were studying to be pastors, 
And I hadn't seen him in years, and I was very excited to catch up with him. And so we, uh, we met up at a coffee shop, and I, when I walked up, he was reading, and he was always reading the Bible. He's a Bible major, he was always reading the Bible. And so I thought, okay, you know, he's still studying, it's great. And I walk up, and I sit down with him, and I go, man, what's going on? I thought you'd be reading the Bible right now. And he goes, the Bible? I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. That's all a bunch of fairy tales, man. That's ridiculous. I stopped believing that stuff a long time ago. And I just thought, oh, no. It's happening. It's, it, I've got questions, and I've got doubts, and he had questions, and he has doubts, and I've seen so many people, and yet they didn't walk back to their faith. They walked away from their faith. And so what was the difference? Like, what is the difference between people who enter into this time of questioning and doubts, and some people, they end up losing their faith, and I'm sure that everybody in this room can talk about a story in which a close family member or a friend who grew up in the faith or walked for a while as a Christian has walked away. What's the difference between the people who come back and their faith is stronger and the people who lose it altogether? And so as I was thinking about this question, and I've thought about the last 10 years of the journey that I've been on, at the same time, I've also, um, I've also picked up another hobby, and I tell you guys about it all the time, so I thought I'd show you guys today, is um, building an old truck. So this is not my truck here. Uh, this actually is a truck that my dad and I found about 15 years ago. Somebody was trying to get rid of it, so we picked it up, and, and uh, it's a cool little, I would call it a driver truck. Uh, if you're wondering, it's a 53 Ford F100. Um, my uh, brother-in-law blew up the motor pretty quickly when he decided to drive. Anyway, different story. Um, that's why he's out in the youth building. <laughs> Demoted. No, we love the youth. They're great. They're awesome. It's just destructive, and so is he. Okay. Um, no. And so this truck, what's, what's cool about this truck is um, the day that we got it, it was ready to go. We just went and we picked it up, and we've been driving it, well, until that motor thing, ever since is it's complete. Somebody else did all the work to put this thing together. We didn't have to do anything. It was ready to go. And I've realized that that's how a lot of us, we've come to the faith position that we have. And I don't care what faith you have. You could be a Christian, you could be a secular, you could be Jewish, you could be Catholic. You could be, I don't care what position you have, what worldview you have. You inherited it from somebody else. Somebody constructed it and they gave it to you, at least at one point in your life. You think about growing up, your parents gave you a way to view the world. The way that they saw the world was the way that you saw the world. And so depending on the household that you grew up in, they handed you a complete view of here's what we think about God, here's what we think about uh, humanity, here's what we think about the universe, here's what we think about everything in the world. You got a complete worldview, just like this. The problem is, is just like inheriting a complete truck, after a while, you start to notice some things. So my truck, that's my truck. We'll get there. My truck, yeah, yeah, no, no, thank you. Uh, that wasn't Amy cheering, by the way. That was not her. Um, my truck over there uh, used to look like this truck right here. It was yellow, but it was complete. It was cool. In fact, I got to drive it for a while, like three years. I drove it everywhere. But then some things started to bother me about it. I looked at it and I went, oh man, there's some there's some rust bubbles right here. That, oof, that's not okay. And uh, there's a giant scratch which Doyle put in a couple weeks ago and almost lost his mind. Uh, there's that. Oh, man. And the suspension. Oh, it needs some work. And it's kind of a little bit. And so I started to notice that there were some problems with the truck that I in had inherited. 
And so I had to make a choice. What was I going to do about it? I think the same thing happens with our faith, is the view that we grew up with, it usually works for a while until we get to, and this is on average, our late teen young adult years. And then we start to notice there's some cracks in it. Like the picture that the, my parents or my mentors or the people around me, the, the picture of the world that they painted, it doesn't actually look like that. It doesn't meet up with some of the things that, that, that I'm learning and that I'm experiencing and some of the things that I want to pursue. And so we begin to notice some of the flaws. When I was a youth pastor, I remember there was a student who came up to me and they were in school and they were learning about um, the age of the earth and evolution. And so they came to me and they said, hey, um, so I was taught that God created the world in seven literal days. But then I go to school and they're telling me, no, 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 the earth is billions of years old. And I, I, I thought that like we would hang out with dinosaurs. And they're telling me, uh-uh, there was millions of years apart from dinosaurs of humans. What do I do? See, what's happening right there is the worldview that they grew up with is coming into conflict with another worldview. And so they have potentially a, a crisis moment. Now, there's some people, when they have these conflicts, it doesn't bother them too much. They either are okay with the ambiguity of it, or they say, you're right, there's a conflict here, and so I'm going to resolve that conflict and then move on, and they move on with, with confidence in their, their view. So my, my, my wife, I would say her faith looks a lot like this. She grew up in a pastor's home, great parents, and the view of the world and faith that she was given has held up over the years. Like she went to public school in LA. It's not like she was sheltered. It's not like she doesn't know what's going on in the world. She understands. She's seen all the conflict and it's held up to the scrutiny. And, and over the years, she's not only seen how um, beneficial it's been for her and her family, but she's fallen in love with this faith. And so when I think about her, this is kind of a representative of her faith. You can't shake it too much. And if there's really an issue, she'll address it and then she'll keep moving on. Doesn't bother her. The faith that she was given uh, as, a, as, a, as a young person looks a lot like the faith she still holds today. And as a parent, that's the goal. I want my kids to have a faith that they can continue to maintain throughout their entire life yeah, there's going to be adjustments along the way and there's going to be some things that don't quite maybe make sense and so they're going to have to wrestle through those. But man, by and large, if I can give them a faith, a view of the world and of God that holds up for the rest of their life, I have done my job. But there's others of us. There's others of us who when we see that there's some issues, maybe there are some rust bubbles, we look at it and we go, oh my goodness. Well, if there's rust bubbles here, what else is happening underneath the paint? What else is going on? And so we start to be plagued with questions and doubts. That's me. And so um, it's interesting. We, we see in the scriptures that we're not alone in this. Uh, there are some heroes of the faith that have been in the, the same place as we have, one of which is John the Baptist. If you don't know anything about John the Baptist, he was the one um, that came directly before Jesus. He was sent by God to announce the arrival of the Messiah, to prepare the way. He was a prophetic voice. He was kind of a wild man. He used to just say crazy things that people would get upset about, and one of which was he called out the king and the queen for their sexual immorality. Not a great idea because it got him in trouble. And so he ends up being thrown into prison, and as he's sitting there in prison, he sends Jesus a message. And remember, he is the one that has acknowledged that Jesus is the future Messiah. Here's what he says in uh, Matthew eleven two. 2. 
When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he, went, or he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So this, this man went from a man of courage and strength and faith. He was sent by God to all of a sudden a man who is plagued with doubts and questions. What happened? Well, I think that we can see the three areas, and these three areas are the areas that primarily um, construct our beliefs being challenged. He's having three experiences here. First one is he's having a social experience. So um, he was born into this Jewish sect called the Essenes. And the Essenes, they lived in a tight-knit community out in the desert with one another. And then when he started a ministry and became this prophetic voice, he had these disciples that followed him and learned from him. And so his whole life, he has been in this committed community of believers. And then all of a sudden, what happens? They're all gone in a moment's time. He goes from living in the wild to being caged. He goes from being surrounded by people who believe and think just like him to being isolated. And if you remember last week, we talked about that. We talked about one of the ways in which we start believing lies is when we get isolated. Eve, she was by herself. And so she began to bite when the serpent tempted her. So um, we see that we are, uh, we are very much formed and influenced by the people and the culture that we are surrounded by. And it's true of all of our beliefs, whether it's political beliefs or it's fashion, religion, even beauty. So I, I tell this story sometimes, and I think it's kind of funny, but it, it represents this well, is um, we have ministry partners in Africa. And up until the last couple of years, we would go there every summer, we would visit them, we would do different kind of pastoral training and things like that. And, and the, when we first started going there, one of our ministry partners, hilarious guy named Alex, and he would always give my dad a hard time because he would say, Pastor Doyle. He'd actually say, Pastor Dole, Pastor Dole, um, your wife, are you not taking care of her? I'm like, what are you talking about? Am I not taking care of her? She is too skinny. Too sk-, which my mom was like, I knew I loved this place. <laughs> you know, like, I love you guys. This is the best. Um, because in their culture, a lot of them were, were born in villages in which food was scarce. And so if you were a person um, who is caring for your family and your spouse, the bigger they are, the more beautiful they are. Now, I'm generalizing here, but I would say that in the West, our conception of beauty in general stereotypically is we want to see skinny swimsuit models. That's, what we, that's our conception of beauty. But then you go there and they have the exact opposite conception of beauty. Well, what's the difference? The culture, the people that we surround ourselves. It's shaped the way that we even see beauty. Now, we can take this to religion. Is we are oftentimes um, formed religiously, spiritually, by the people we surround ourselves. So, um, for example, if you were born in the Middle East, what faith would you most likely be a part of? You can say it. It's okay. We're, we can... Muslim, yeah. You're like, I don't think it's, is it right? I don't know. I don't know. Is it a trick? It's a trick. I'm not saying anything. No, it's okay. All right, how about this? If you were born in Sweden, what would you be? An atheist. If you were born in Utah, what would you be? A Mormon. You were confident in that one. You were like, I know that one. I know Utah. I feel good about Utah. Okay. <laughs> so one of the questions that, that, that I have to ask whenever I'm doubting or somebody else uh, it comes to me with doubts is, well, 
has your social setting changed at all? Like, are you in a period of transition? So when I was a young adult pastor, it would be people who maybe were freshmen in college and they went from being under their parents' roof to now they're in college and they're in the dorms and they're around a bunch of people who don't believe or think like them and they begin to doubt and they wonder, is it because I took philosophy 101, now I'm discovering the truth? And it's like, no, I don't think so. There might be a little bit more to the story than that. Which is also why uh, one of our strategies around here is to try to get you into community. It's because we understand the power of being in community and how these people around us will begin to shape the way that we see the world. The second is this, is a cultural experience. Oh, excuse me. Uh, This one's an add-on for me. Is, uh, I think this isn't just true of our personal relationships. I think this is cultural as well. And here's my theory on the whole deal. You can take it or leave it. Is we have been talking for a while now about how we see the cultural temperature change in the moment that we find ourselves in. It's becoming less religious and more secular. And I think that we've kind of hit this tipping point is where at one point in our history, um, the majority of people believed. They they had some sort of faith. And what I mean by that is like a, a religious faith. But I think we've hit a tipping point in which that's no longer the majority, that's the minority, especially in places like here in Southern California. And I know that's true when we drill down to their view of of, uh, Christianity because it says, uh, statistics show that only about 6% of people have an actual biblical worldview. And so if that is becoming more and more true, and we've also talked about part of the reason is because of this rise in radical individualism, meaning we believe the highest value is to be true to ourself, to be autonomous, to do what we want to do and not be tied down by anybody else's beliefs, values, or restrictions. And so what happens is we start to view any kind of institution, it could be church, it could be government, it could even be family, as something that is repressive, something that we must reject, something that we must get rid of because it may limit our personal freedoms. We live in what Charles Taylor calls the a disenchanted age, meaning we live at a time in which we have rejected the supernatural out of our everyday life. James K.A. Smith, who wrote a book um, explaining Charles Taylor, he says this, he says, as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. See, what he's saying is, because of the culture that we're in and the place that we find ourselves in human history, being a faithful follower of Jesus doesn't come easy. It never was easy but it almost feels like every day is a battle just to stay committed and faithful to following him. So that's why we also put people and we push them into community, is you need other people who are gonna help build you up, are gonna show you the things that you're not seeing, are gonna give you stuff. So um, when I began working on my truck, I knew nothing about cars. I still know very little. And I was thankful because there's some guys who um, knew a lot. In fact, this is what they did for a living. And they came around me and they said, okay, we're going to start showing you how these things work. We're going to show you how to weld. We're going to show you the mechanics. We're going to show you how to... And they came around, and I would have never got my car put back together if I hadn't had those people around me. Same is true of my faith. Is if there were not people who came around me and said, okay, we've been down this path before. We know what this looks like. Help us walk through this with you. Second is personal experiences. Oftentimes, our beliefs are shaped by personal experiences that we have. So for John the Baptist, he was experiencing something that caused him to doubt. He was about to be beheaded. That, that would do it. 
For some of you, um, you've had personal experiences in which it brought you to faith, where maybe you had kids and you just went, okay, uh, these kids are wild. I don't know what to do. We should probably go find someone to help us with this. What do you think? I don't know. I heard church might be good. Let's try church. Let's see if church can, let's go and see what they have to say. Or maybe it's something tragic that happened in your life and it woke you up and you said, you know what? This life is short. I need to go find some answers. But those same experiences, they can also turn you away from God. They can cause you to doubt. You're the victim of an injustice. You're, you lose a loved one. And all of a sudden, the faith that you had is in question. And so you begin to doubt. I, uh, I used to ask young adults all the time when they would come to me with doubts, before we would even jump into their doubts. And I got this from one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller. Is, uh, he said, before we even address the questions that you have, and I love the questions and we can talk through all of them, I need you to answer a couple questions for me first. Are you sleeping with anybody? What? I wanted to know about the creation of the universe, man, not creation of babies. What are we talking about here? It's like, well, because if there is something in your life that you want to pursue, but your faith is getting in the way of you pursuing it, we should probably know that first. Because you may have these desires, you may have something you want to chase after, and if you found out your faith may not be true, you can go and pursue those things right now. Everybody says, no, 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 I just want to know what the truth is. No, you don't. Nobody does. You have underlying motivations. It's okay. Everybody does. And so what he says is, you have to learn to doubt your doubts. If you have doubts, you need to be as honest as you can and try to list all the reasons why you would benefit if this faith weren't true. Oh, I'd get to pursue this relationship, or I get to pursue this business deal, or I get to be free from this. I, I get to do what I want to do. Keller says you have to learn to doubt your doubts because it's not just about addressing the content of your doubts, it's about addressing the source of your doubts. And the third is this, is intellectual experience. Uh, sometimes we run into a new question, new information that conflicts or challenges uh, some of our beliefs. And so for me, it was obviously reading this book and asking these questions that I have never asked before. For John the Baptist, he was sitting there and all of these experiences, the social um, experiences that he's having and, uh, and the fears, they all came to a head in this question. Is Jesus the Messiah? And here's the good news that I've learned over 10 years of just studying and studying and studying. No matter what question or doubt you have, somebody has already had it, and they are way smarter than you. I don't care how smart you are, they're way smarter than you. And they have spent a long time coming up with a, a, an answer that satisfies them, that they go, I can continue to be a Christian because here's, I promise you, I don't care what it is, I don't care what field it is, there are Christians who have been there, who have done that and have found an answer. And I find comfort in that because whenever I come up with a question, I go, do you think anyone's thought of this before? I mean, I'm real smart, right? No, you're not that smart. Come on. Somebody has already been there and they've already done it, which actually gives me comfort. So um, here's kind of my takeaway from this is whenever we are plagued with doubts, and I I think doubt and questions are natural. I'm talking about like a, a doubt that paralyzes you that makes you second-guess your faith. I've come to realize it's almost never an intellectual issue. 
Not that there's not good questions to be asked. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when it gets to this place in which it becomes emotional, when it becomes paralyzing, it's almost never an intellectual issue. There's always something beyond it. Now, we put up the the screen and we try to say, no, 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 here's the question, but there's always something behind it. And I know this because as I asked questions, I would come to what I believe to be a good answer to the question and I would feel no relief from my doubts. I would just have more. I would have more questions and more doubts year after year after year, even if I've come up with what I believe to be good answers. And I know this is true for you because people come to me all the time and they go, hey, here's this question I've been wrestling with and I give them what I believe to be a good answer and they walk away and they go, yeah, but I still doubt. Ah, that didn't do it for me. Well, do you think that was a good answer? Yeah, 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 it seemed like a good answer, but I just don't know. Oh, maybe the, the issue that you're having isn't purely intellectual like we want to believe. Stage two is, um, is when we pursue these questions and these doubts even further, and it becomes this process called deconstruction. So one day, I decided... Um, I wasn't okay with the couple rust bubbles and the suspension and this and that, and, and nor was I just going to address those things and fix it. Um, I was going to tear the entire thing apart. And so I pulled this thing into my garage, having no experience, no tools, no money, no resources, and I decided I'm going to tear this thing all the way down. And so I took it apart piece by piece, bolt by bolt, until it looked like this. I had a garage full of, this is just a fraction. I had a garage full of parts. And I got to be honest, when I first did it, I looked and I went, I did that. That's right. You see how manly that is? It looked like that. Now it looks like this. I just tore that whole thing down. And then I realized, okay, but like now what? Like I had a cool driving truck and now I have parts of a truck. So I had to make a decision. What am I going to do? Uh, I can do what I see all the time online, which is project truck for sale. (laughs) It's like, oh, another failed dream. If I was in the Midwest, I could put it in the front lawn and call it lawn art. (laughs) Can't do that. Or I've got to begin the slow and painful process of reconstruction, building it back up. That's what I had to do with my faith, too. I just started tearing that thing apart. I I didn't just ask one question. I asked every question. Okay, does God exist? What about the Bible? Can I trust it? How about the resurrection? What do I? And I just started to tear the whole thing down. So questions, doubts, they're okay, they're good. But what I didn't realize is it's also very dangerous depending on how I do it. And so what I did was I ended up with, instead of a faith that I addressed each issue at a time and I tried to figure out, I ended up with a faith that looked a lot like this. A lot of questions, a lot of doubts, and no certainty whatsoever. And so what was I going to do? I learned later in a seminary by one of my favorite professors and kind of a hero of the faith, William Lane Craig, he told us, he said, what I do when I begin, and this guy's an amazing philosopher, uh, probably one of the top philosophers in the world, he says, here's what I do. Um, Before I go and I start tearing everything apart, I pick one thing and I say, I'm going to fix this one thing. I'm going to wrestle with this one doubt. I'm going to find an answer to this one question. He says, and then I move on to the next question. I said, so how long does that process usually take? He says, each question on average takes about 12 years. (laughs) 12 years? (laughs) Okay, that's not going to happen. But he said, 
one question at a time. It's okay, ask questions, but don't be silly about it because you're gonna end up with this. This is where my friends ended up right here. This is where my old roommate, this is where some of those church leaders ended up. Is they just said, not that there's not issues, but I'm just gonna tear it all down. But what they were left with in the end was not something better, it was a mess. It was a life that was spinning out of control. It was a life with no purpose any longer. I think that we live in a culture that, um, that likes to tear things down right now. Is every day I hear people complaining about the world, about our country, and they might be right, the things that they're observing. The problem is all they want to do is tear it down. And I want to ask them, what are you going to replace it with? Because when you tear things down, if you don't replace it with something, it just looks like this. You have a country, you have a faith, you have a family that just is in pieces. And so I want to ask, what are you doing to replace the things that you want to tear down? See, deconstruction, this idea of tearing things down, asking these questions, it's supposed to just be a step in the journey, a painful step where sometimes you don't know your way out, but it's just supposed to be a phase. It's not where you're supposed to live. Because when you decide that destruction or that uh, deconstruction is not just a means to an end, but is the end in itself. The goal is to tear things down. And we live in a culture that says, yes, tear it all down, burn it. We will applaud you as you do. When deconstruction does not lead to a reconstruction, it just becomes destruction. Is it just becomes you tearing another thing down in the world, another family, another country, another faith. And so I want to know, well, what are you going to replace it with? It's fine. Ask all the questions you want. Let's do this. This is great. One at a time. Let's figure out. But if you just want to tear things down and you don't have a vision for how to replace it, see, when, when I began tearing things down, I at least had a vision for where I wanted to end up. I'm not there yet, <laughs> but I at least knew where I wanted to go. A lot of people just tear it down and they think the value is in the destruction. It's not. And so, I, uh, I think about this story in the scriptures, and this is one of the turning points for me. Oh, by the way, let me give you a quick, I know I'm going to run out of time. Amy said I could go over, and she's the boss, so it's fine. Um, here's the difference between destruction and deconstruction. I think what Martin Luther did 500 years ago, Reformation, maybe we know, um, what he did was deconstruction, in which he saw that there was an issue within the faith. He said, we've got all this cultural baggage that we've added onto it. And so what I want to do is I want to deconstruct, meaning I want to take away all that extra baggage so that I can get back to what the core of Christianity is. What I see happen today within a lot of Christian circles, and I will call them, let's say, progressive Christianity. What I see happening is we don't like this thing. It doesn't match our expectations. It doesn't match uh, what culture is saying. And so we're just going to tear that part of the faith out. Core tenets, gone. And what they're doing here is two things. One, they're not building anything. They're only tearing things down. The other is they are allowing culture to critique Scripture, not Scripture critique culture. And when you start looking at the lens of Scripture and determining what is good and evil through what culture says instead of what scripture says, you're no longer the, moving in the way of Jesus. Because Jesus always used scripture to critique culture, not culture to critique scripture. Okay, 
Let me hurry up real quick. One day Jesus was uh, with a crowd of people, and um, he was doing one of those uh, kind of buffet lunches where he fed 5,000, and he gives them a little talk afterward, and everybody's into it. Who doesn't like a free meal? And as all these people are there, he says something very strange. He says this, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. So some people refer to this as the vampire sermon. <laughs> so you want, you, you want us to live forever. We're going to die and rise again if we drink your blood? Yeah, that's a vampire, Jesus. That's a vampire. Now, he's obviously referring to communion, which they'll, they'll later understand, but, um, but it doesn't go over well with the crowd. <laughs> they hear this and they go, thanks for the free meal. I'm just kind of second-guessing what we just ate, but I'm out. <laughs> Bye. And so everybody just starts leaving. Bye. Everybody's gone. And eventually, it's just the 12 disciples left. And, one of, uh, and Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? It's like he read their mind. Yeah, we kind of do. This is weird, Jesus. Like we were celebrities five minutes ago. Then you said weird things. Everybody's gone and they go, oh, the vampire crew. Yeah, 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 we've heard of them before. I kind of do want to leave right now. But then Peter interjects and he says this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's the question at the end of the day. That's the question for me that I ended up kind of being a stopping point because here's what Peter realized is if I walk away from Jesus, I'm going to have to walk towards someone or something else. It's not just that I get to tear things down all the time and go, that's weird. I don't like that. I want to get rid of it. It's that when I get rid of that, I've got to replace it with something or else my life will look like this. And so is the thing that I'm going to replace it with, is it better than what I just got rid of? Peter says, who else is going to offer words of eternal life? I've been listening to the way that you speak. I've been seeing your, this authority. It's almost like this divine authority, the insight into the human heart, the way that you're turning the world upside down. You're not just another teacher. You're not just a philosopher. You're not just a religious leader. There is something about you that you've been sent by God. It's as if when you speak, it's coming down from heaven itself. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Sure, we still have questions. We got doubts. We're not even sure what all that means. That's weird. But where else are we going to go? Is there a better option out there? Not is there a perfect, is our, our faith perfect and we know everything and there's not rust bubbles and there's not things that need to be addressed. No, 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 no. That's not the question. The question is, do you have somewhere better to go? And Peter and the rest of the disciples and billions of people since then have said, as we look around the world, there is no one else who we would rather follow. You are the one that we can put our trust in. What happens here is Peter moves from doubting to believing, from tearing something down to building up a faith, from deconstruction to reconstruction. So this is my truck. And it doesn't look like much. But it's been about almost 10 years that I've been working on it. This is what I do on my day off. <laughs> like, you need more days off, bro. Um, 
See, when I, when I tore my truck down and I had all the pieces on the floor, I said, okay, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to construct something that, that actually is significant, I'm going to have to begin with the foundation. And so for the car people in the room, um, I said, all right, the frame, I'm going to have to start with the frame. And so I began constructing the frame. And um, what's funny is there was about this much of the original frame left when I was done because some of my friends helped me put a Mustang 2 front end on there and then a four-link suspension with coilovers on the back and I had sandblasted and powder-coated and I said, boom! <laughs> now we're talking. So then I put the curry rear end in there. And of course, because I'm going to have a 351 crate motor that's going to haul, and so it's got to have a rear end that can handle it. And so then I have the frame, I have the suspension, I have the motor, overdrive transmission so I can drive it on the freeway. I've got this thing ready. And so I started building up from there. And then I moved on to the next pieces. All right, well, we got to start figuring out the, the body and, okay, maybe the, the running boards. And so I smoothed those out and I kind of fabricated them to match up with the fender all right. And then I came with the, the door jams and, oh, and those were a mess. And you know there's got to be an eighth of an inch. And so I started adding metal and shaving it. And then I started doing some of the filler and the bodywork and the primer. And here we are, 10 years later. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. You're not impressed. It's fine. It's a work in progress. I get it. You walked in and you went, meh, and that's how you feel about me. I get it. You walk in and you go, meh, and I go, yeah, you're right. I'm a work in progress. I'm trying to figure it out. But here's, here's the deal, is I, was not, I refuse to stay here. I refuse to, to stay here. It is, takes no skill to destroy. It takes a lot to reconstruct. And so I said, I don't care if it takes a lifetime, which by the way, my dad said, your faith will be complete when your truck is complete the day you die. <laughs> so that's rude. <laughs> but here's, here's kind of what I, what I realized is, I refuse to stay here with my faith in shambles, with my worldview a mess, I will reconstruct and I will start from the bottom up and I will build something. And so that's, that's what I've been doing. I have a vision for what this is going to look like one day. I also have a vision for who I'm going to be one day. And that is a man at the end of my life who has weathered the storms. Yeah, I still have doubts. I still have uncertainty. In this world, how can you not? And yet, I'm faithful. I kept showing up. I kept becoming who God wanted me to be. And I didn't do that because I've lost all my doubts and my questions because I refused to quit showing up. I just am going to be faithful day after day after day. So I want to circle back real quick to end. Jesus' response to John the Baptist as he's questioning and doubting, he says this, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See, what he says to John is he doesn't say, just close your eyes, clench your fists, and try harder to believe. Just try your hardest to believe. That's not what he says. What Jesus says to John is he says, look at, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at the things that I've said. Look at the lives that have changed. Look at how I've turned the world upside down. What does all of that point towards? That I'm the Messiah. Then he says something really weird. He said, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Wait a minute. So Jesus, are you saying that 
you may say some things. You may ask us of some things. You may not show up when we want to. You may not relieve our questions and our doubts. And you're doing that intentionally? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you allow me to experience this? And I think his response would have been because it's in the desert of doubt that you learn to trust and to follow me more deeply. Let's pray. Lord God, there are some people in this room who, who might be in that desert of doubt. Um, maybe it's doubting that you're there. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's a lack of trust. Maybe it's just they're, they're flooded with questions. And, um, and Lord God, you, you're okay with that. You're secure enough to be able to handle those questions and those doubts. And Lord, I just pray that whoever might be in that process, that they wouldn't stay in the middle, that they wouldn't settle for destruction, but that they would eventually come to a place in which they want to reconstruct this faith. Because at the end of the day, where else are we going to go? And so, Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your faithfulness as we walk through the desert. You are not going to give up on us as long as we don't give up on you. And so, Lord, continue to walk with us. We may not have all the answers. We may still doubt, but you're still faithful. In the name we pray. Amen. All right, well, you guys stand with me. Hey, um, Doyle's out of town this weekend, so we're going to raffle off his car out there for some of the men's. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Anyway, have a great week. God bless. See you guys. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.